0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Midweek Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Proverbs chapter 10 tonight. Proverbs chapter 10 starts the next big section of Proverbs. When I say it's a big section of Proverbs, it includes 375 individual Proverbs or individual sayings. The first nine chapters were kind of long treatises on good versus evil. Now we're going to get into more of what we think of when we think of Proverbs, more kind of short, pithy sayings, most of these sayings fall into the category of being couplets. And those couplets oftentimes are contrasts, or they're saying the same synonymous thing. If you want the big theological terminology, they are uh, antithetical parallelism. Use that phrase in a sentence later, impress your friends or synonymous parallelism, which is just a form of Jewish poetry. We saw some of this when we were going through the book of Job. We saw that occasionally, and most of the book of Job, was written in this parallel form where something was said twice in two different ways in order for us to get the point. And the two different ways that it could be said was either by saying the same thing twice in absolute parallel, or saying the same thing twice in contrast so that we could get the point. Most of chapter 10 is contrasting, but we will see the occasional synonym. Chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, all six of those chapters, continue the theme that we've already seen in the first nine chapters. It's more of the advantages of being righteous. And a call to abhor evil and not follow the ways of sin. And you're going to see that for the next six chapters before we get into kind of basic life lessons. And if you're anything like me, and I really, I hope to God you're not. But if you're anything like me and you have that kind of systematic mindset, if you like your theology to be laid out for you systematically, which I do, then this part of Proverbs will kind of drive you crazy because Solomon says things, little couplets, introduces a topic, here's the subject, and then he goes on to just completely other things and then comes back to the same topic later. We'll use not just a parallel line, but we'll say the same thing again. Here's what I'm talking about. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 2. It says, ill-gotten gains do not profit, and you might think, well, well, now wait a minute. I know plenty of people who, through chicanery, have made themselves rich, and, and it did seem to be some kind of profit to them. So what is Solomon getting at? Well, the second half of this parallel says, but righteousness delivers from death. Okay, that's the opposite phrase of what he just said. In order to understand the first half of the sentence, go to chapter 11 for just a moment, verse 4, and the second half of verse 4 says, but righteousness delivers from death. The exact same phrase. Now when you look at the first half of chapter 11, verse 4, it says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Oh, well, that we can understand, that we can comprehend. When the judgment happens in the day of God's wrath, it's not going to matter how much money you have or how well you did here on the planet. So sometimes you have to kind of not just understand the contrasts that are within a single couplet, but you have to see the phraseology that Solomon uses because he uses some lines over and over again And it's only by comparing those with the thing he's contrasting to that you can get the big picture. Does that make sense? So, I'm a systematics guy. I wish that he had gone to like the topic of gain, you know, and then said everything he had to say about money and gain and working hard. And then I would know, okay, on the topic, that's what Solomon thinks about that. And then we can move on to the next thing. But that's not how he works. Instead, he says something like chapter 10, verse 2, ill-gotten gains. And then he doesn't get back to it until a chapter or two later. And then by comparison, we get a better sense of what he's saying. Now, I will also say that even though I have read through this series of couplets in chapter 10 and read through them over and over again and read some commentaries, tried to understand what's being said here, I am completely open to any of your interpretations as well because much of what Solomon says here kind of begs for understanding and interpretation. For instance, we read last week about paying attention to an ant and then he tells us that the ant, though he doesn't have any boss, still knows enough to lay up a side for himself. If you just look at it on its face, and just read it for what it says, that it says, ants are really good insects. But we know that Solomon's saying more than just, gee, I admire ants. He's saying, we ought to conduct ourselves in a certain way based on how ants work. And so there is a certain amount of interpretation that's necessary to understand each of these individual couplets. And I'll give it my best shot, but you are also welcome to say, well, doesn't it mean this? And doesn't it also imply this? Because I think Solomon is expecting his audience to draw meaning from what he's saying. He's expecting that his short, pithy statements will inspire deeper consideration. So if you uh, see something in it that I have not said, then feel free to Add your commentary. I welcome that. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon. That's how we know that we're beginning a new section. This is a collection of sayings, a collection of Proverbs. And he starts right out with, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And the first time I read that, years and years ago, I thought, well, that's interesting. Solomon just disowned his son and gave him over to his mother when he was bad, which actually used to happen to me. I related to this completely, (laughs) because my mother used to have to threaten us with, wait until your father gets home. And then dad would come home, and she would say, do you know what your son did? It's like, oh, she just disowned me. Well, Solomon did the same basic thing here. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Really what Solomon's getting at is that earlier he said, pay attention to the instruction of your father and to the instruction of your mother. And so he's not really throwing his son under the bus. He's saying that a wise man makes both his father and his mother glad. And a foolish son is a grief to his father and his mother. But since he's setting up contrasts, he contrasted wise son and foolish son, and he contrasted father and mother, and he contrasted glad and grief.
1: I'll have a comment on that. Please do. I think that uh, worry is a backdrop to both ends of that because every father wants to know of his son He knows what he's done. He doesn't need my help. He'll be okay. I don't Mm -hmm. have to worry. And on the other hand, the foolish son drives mom nuts because mom doesn't know what she's going to do and she starts pulling out her gray hair. Mm -hmm. But the backdrop, I think a a big part of it is worry, and that's why it makes the the father Mm -hmm.
0: mad. Being concerned about what your kid's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ill-gotten gains do not profit but righteousness delivers from death. You're going to see as Solomon continues developing these ideas that he's talking about a whole lot more than just money than just physical gain in a moment. He's going to talk about hunger and he's not talking about food when he talks about it. It's clear that he's talking about spiritual things. So, Ill-gotten gains mean these earthly gains, certainly, but they don't profit. In what way do they not profit? Well, just a moment ago, I showed you chapter 11, verse 4. They don't profit in the day of wrath. No amount of money, no amount of stuff you gather in this lifetime is going to be any defense against God and his wrath against sin. And if the gains that you have accumulated are ill-gotten, which means illegally gotten through some kind of chicanery, through robbery, anything like that, that's certainly sin. And so the wrath of God is on sinners. So just because you've accomplished stuff in this lifetime through illegal efforts, that's not actually gain. That's actually to your destruction. Because when you look at the second half of it, it says, but righteousness which is living fairly, living justly, that delivers from death. Well, he can't be saying that delivers from physical death. He's saying that delivers from the wrath of God, from the punishment of God. Righteousness delivers from death. Again, chapter 11, verse 4, that becomes much more obvious when he says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So then death And wrath are parallel to each other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Verse 3, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger. Now, in your footnotes or marginal notes in some of your translations, you'll see that it says the Lord will not allow the soul of the righteous to hunger. Because if we just said, This is talking about physical food, and the righteous never hunger. Well, Paul talked about the fact that he hungered. Paul said, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be full. I know how to suffer lack. He had gone through times of physical hunger, and yet he was righteous. Jesus himself, after his 40 days in the wilderness, was hungry. And certainly, we would argue, he was also righteous, So he's not saying that genuinely righteous people never go hungry, which is why it's important to understand the footnote that says the Lord will not allow the soul of the righteous to hunger. Now, if you're talking about the soul of the righteous, what is it that the soul of the righteous longs for? They long for righteousness. Mm -hmm. And so God is not going to allow the soul of the righteous to to long for righteousness and not receive it. He's going to fill them with the satisfaction of their righteousness. Especially when you look at the second half of that parallel, it says, but he will thrust aside the cravings of the wicked. So that has to do with the internal desire, illicit desires and wants of the wicked. He's not going to fulfill those. He's going to thrust those aside. So now when we put the two phrases together, the Lord will not allow the soul of the righteous to hunger, but he will thrust aside the cravings of the wicked. You can understand that he's talking about the cravings, the desires of the righteous, and he's going to satisfy that desire. He's going to fill them for their hunger for righteousness, but he's going to thrust aside, cast off the cravings, the desires, the hunger of the wicked. Does that make sense? Yes,
1: sir. Okay. You guys here probably don't. Um, so when we came here, we were fed that spiritual nature. So uh-huh. I, I can literally relate to that verse. But you guys were already being fed, so you guys probably not. i do not. I don't know how to say it, but you guys probably don't. Appreciate it. Feel, feel, feel the way that we do about it? I, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure what you're
0: saying. I would say, at least in my instance, uh, I agree with you entirely, and I know that feeling that you're saying, because I did grow up in the Lutheran Church, where every week, all we got was liturgy and a little 15-minute homiletic sermon that never taught us the Bible. I never had any understanding of the Bible. And later in life, as I Crave to know what the truth was I was very fortunate that God brought proper teaching into my life and gave me good pastors and gave me people who knew and that satisfied my soul (laughs) okay well yeah I relate to that entirely and I'll bet you we could go around the room and people would say the same thing yeah you just kind of get used to it and yeah And you start thinking, this is all we get, and meanwhile, you're starving to death. Yeah. Verse 4, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Okay, that's a basic truism that kind of introduces a subject that Solomon's going to touch on several different times, which is, It's good to work when the work is available. When you're young, be diligent. During your good, healthy working years, work hard, lay aside, be prepared for what's coming. And so a person who works with a negligent hand can be likened to somebody who does go to work occasionally, but then they just fritter away whatever they've worked on. They're not putting anything away. They're not planning for the future. Whatever your hand finds to do, not only should you do it with all your might, but you should do it as unto the Lord. Well, this is the same idea. If you have work, if you have the opportunity to do work, if that work is going to bring some gain into your life, it's going to bring food into your life, it's going to bring riches, money into your life, then you want to be diligent with what God has put in front of you. But you're going to end up poor if when you work, you go there negligently. But on the opposite extreme, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So if you have the opportunity to work and you go and do your work and you work diligently and you lay aside and you plan for the future, then that is going to make you Rich. That's going to benefit you in the future. That's going to create an environment around you, which Solomon's going to talk about more in a moment. That's going to create an environment where you're safe. In fact, it becomes for you a fortress. So it protects you from the onslaughts of the world. Verse 5 then. This is very much like verse 4. I wish Solomon would just stay on topic like this more frequently. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely. What he's saying there is during the winter when nothing's growing, that's not a good time to go out and gather. But during the summer, that's the harvest period, that's the time when a son ought to go out and gather. But he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who acts shamefully. So that's why a moment ago I said, when you have the opportunity to work, when the opportunity is right in front of you to go and be diligent in order to improve your lot in life and provide for yourself, if you don't do that diligently, that moment may pass you by. So when it's harvest time, when it's summer, then the person who goes out and diligently gathers stuff, that's wisdom. It's like, oh, this is available now. The work is available now. The food is available now. And if I work hard and gather enough food, that will get me through the winter and I'll be fine. But he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who acts shamefully. It's a shame when people don't take care of themselves, don't provide for their family. That idea, even again, Paul carries it into the New Testament and says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And so it is important in Solomon's mind. That we take advantage of the opportunities to go out and diligently work, to lay aside, to plan for the future. And if you don't do that, then that's a shame for you because men were made to get out there and work. Verse 6 Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. That phrase, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, is another theme that Solomon is going to touch on time and time again. In fact, if you look down to verse 11, you'll see the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So let's talk about each of those phrases. Blessings are on the head of the righteous means... That people who do righteously are going to be blessed by other people. When they see them, when they encounter them, when they interact with them, they're going to bless them. Janine has a phrase that she uses frequently that I like, where when people are going through a tough time or when people are doing a good thing, when people are acting appropriately, she will say almost under her breath, but she'll just say, oh, bless them. Okay, what has she done? She's basically put a blessing on them. That's what Solomon is talking about. Those kinds of blessings are on the head of the righteous. If you're righteous, if you're fair, if you're just, if you treat people well, if you take care of folks, if you live righteously on this planet, then yes, people are going to bless you for it. On the other hand, the mouth of the wicked conceals Violence. That's really interesting. What it means is people might talk a good story. People might talk a good game. But wicked people, even while they're saying good things, are concealing the fact that they are wicked and violence is going to come. Most wicked people that you meet do not walk up to you and say, hi, my name is Dave. How are you? You're going to rue the day you met me. That, that virtually never happens. That would make it a lot easier. It would make it a lot easier if people would just do that, then we would know. Instead, what they do is usually conceal violence. They usually act like they're one of us. But eventually, the thing that they've concealed, Solomon is going to tell us, that's going to become openly known. But their lips conceal it. So again, thematically, Solomon is going to talk about your lips, your mouth, your tongue, your speech, what you say, how it's necessary that you speak the way you act. It should be all in righteousness and that wicked people, even though they might talk a good story, are just concealing what they really are. By the way, somebody look up Luke 645 in one of your digital tablets or something Because Jesus kind of said the very same idea, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, the mouth of the wicked doesn't really just burst out and tell you what they are and who they are, but the violence is in them, and eventually it's going to come out, and out of the abundance of their heart, their speech is going to eventually betray them, and that's what Jesus got at in Luke 6.45, do you have it?
1: The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks.
0: Out of the abundance of a person's heart, they're going to speak. If they have a righteous heart, a righteous mind, they're going to say good things. Solomon is also going to get to that that listening to righteous people is beneficial. It's wise to listen to Righteous people, because out of that abundance of their heart, they're saying good and beneficial things. Mm -hmm. But evil men, out of the abundance of their heart, eventually they're going to speak it. It's going to come forward. They might try to conceal it, but it's going to come out. All right, verse 7 then. As you look back on the life of righteous people who have ever crossed your path, the memory of the righteous is blessed. So not only are righteous people themselves blessed, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but even the memory of them after they've lived their life, even after they're gone, the memory of them is a blessed memory. I'm sure we can all think of somebody in our lives who crossed our paths, who were righteous, who were influential to us. And now that they're gone, every time you think of them, it's a good feeling. It's a good memory. It's a good blessing. There's nobody in the room right now that's not nodding at me. Because we could all think of somebody. So that's what Solomon is getting at. The memory of the righteous person, that's a blessed memory. But the name of the wicked, the reputation of the wicked, will rot. In other words, it will rot away. It will decay. It will disappear altogether. The contrast being... The righteous person will be well remembered and it will be a blessing when you think of them. But the evil person, their name, their memory, their reputation will eventually just rot away and they'll be forgotten. So you want to be remembered in this lifetime? Well, then live righteously, speak righteously, live justly. Verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commands. In other words, a person with wisdom will listen to instruction. A wise person will understand when information is coming to them that's useful information. They're going to understand that somebody who's wiser, somebody who's older, somebody who's been through it, they know something you don't, so just shut up and listen. And if you do that, that makes you wise because you're ready to receive instruction. But... A babbling fool. Now Solomon's going to use that phrase several times as well. That's going to come up. A babbling fool. What it means is somebody who just never stops talking. You know how enjoyable it is to be around those kind of people. Those kinds of people who won't listen, can't listen, and won't stop talking. And with their endless amounts of words, he's going to say, they demonstrate their own foolishness. They demonstrate their own thick-headedness, which is actually what the Hebrew word for foolishness here is. Their own thick-headedness is demonstrated by the fact that they won't take any information in. If you try to tell them something, you try to instruct them, you try to inform them of something they don't know, they won't listen. But oh, they'll just keep telling you what's going around in their heads. And he says, it's just babbling. It's just like a brook of water that babbles and makes noise. That's what they're like. They're just babbling fools carrying on. The wise of heart will receive commands, instruction, but a babbling fool will be thrown down. A babbling fool will ultimately be told when people have had enough, okay, that's it. We don't want you around. We don't want to hear you anymore. You're beyond foolishness. And, of course, we're told not to answer a fool after his folly. At some point, they're just thrown down. Verse 9. He who walks in integrity walks securely. So he who walks upright, honestly, fairly, justly among other people, that's a person who gains the reputation of being someone who's trustworthy. I can give you a quick example. I trust Micah implicitly. I trust Micah with my wife, Okay, most precious thing I have. And I trust Micah with her, because I know from being around him this amount of time that he walks uprightly, that he's fair, that he's just, that he wouldn't do anything to hurt me on purpose, I assume. And so that's what Solomon is getting at, that he who walks in integrity walks securely. As a consequence, Micah has no fear of me. I have no concern about Micah or his integrity, but he has no reason to be concerned about me. So now if you expand that out, if you've got a whole group of people a whole community of people who know that you walk fairly rightly you're not a liar you're not in chicanery you're not cheating people if they know that you walk with integrity then you walk securely because no one wants to hurt or harm you because you're a good person does that make sense yes sir but he who perverts his ways which means somebody who doesn't walk uprightly someone who does cheat, someone involved in chicanery, someone who's trying to get your money, he who perverts his ways will be found out. You can't walk that way very long before somebody that you've cheated makes sure that everybody else knows it. And the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. So if you don't walk uprightly and righteously, you will be uncovered. And once it is discovered that you are not an upright, trustworthy person, people aren't going to be your friends anymore, and it's not going to be safe for you to be out in the community. A righteous man walks securely, but a man who perverts his way is going to be discovered. He's going to be found out. Verse 10, he who winks the eye causes trouble. I don't think he's just talking about flirtatious winking he's saying here people who conspire people who make plans with their comrades will oftentimes lie to your face and then wink you know that kind of we're going to get him later kind of wink and he who does that ends up causing trouble and a babbling fool will be thrown down okay we've already seen that phrase A babbling fool is going to be thrown down. Somebody who talks all the time is going to end up not walking securely. He's going to be found out. He's not going to listen to instruction. And ultimately, he's going to be sent off. He's going to be thrown down. Notice, by the way, that everything up until verse 9 has been what I called earlier antithetical parallelism. In other words, every one of these phrases has been this, then the opposite, this, then the opposite. Verse 10 is actually a parallel that is synonymous, where the first and the second half of the couplet say the same thing, the same idea. He who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be thrown down. Those are both saying the same thing people who are up to no good, people who are continually talking instead of listening, people who are not wise because they won't understand instruction are the kind of people who will make evil plans and wink the eye and be up to trouble. That's just a consistent personality profile. So then verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. In other words, an upright person. A person who walks in integrity is somebody you should listen to because their words are a fountain of life. They're going to say things you need to know. They're going to give you instruction that's helpful. I was the kind of kid growing up who always had to test everything. I drove my mother crazy. Right up until the day that we were, and this, by the way, is a true story, until the day that we were walking through a greenhouse in Texas, and we walked past several cacti. And my mother instructed us, don't touch that, it's sharp. So I reached out and grabbed it, because I had to test everything my mother said. When she said about the stove, don't touch that, it's hot, I burned my hand. All true. Because that's the way I was. Solomon says here, the mouth of somebody wise, the the mouth of somebody like my mother, who already knew, who was trying to pass on helpful information to me, if I had listened to her, I would have saved myself a lot of pain, a lot of trouble. But instead, I had to test everything. But the mouth of an upright person, A person of integrity, a person who knows what they're talking about, is actually a fountain of life. So if you listen to them, you can prevent a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of difficulty. All of us who are adults will tell our children, now listen, I'm going to help you out here. I've been through this already. I've already been where you are. Trust me, I can keep you from trouble. Do this, this, and that. Some children will listen. Some children, like me, will not. But still, Solomon will say, an upright, a righteous person, a person of integrity, is somebody you can trust, somebody who's honest, and somebody who's going to tell you things that lead to quality of life. So pay attention to them. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But the mouth of the wicked, here's that phrase again, conceals violence. So the mouth of the wicked is always lying. The mouth of the wicked is concealing their own wickedness. But as we know, that's going to be revealed. It's going to come out because people can't, they can't lie forever. I remember years and years and years ago in California, I remember hearing the phrase, To be a good liar, you have to have a really good memory because you have to remember what lie you told to what person. But if you just tell the truth, if you walk uprightly, if you're honest with people, you don't ever have to be afraid that maybe you told somebody something and you got to remember what it was you said. You just always tell the truth. But if your heart is wicked and you're concealing your violence through lies, that's going to come out. It's going to be revealed. There's a technique, you know, that police use. For you young folks, pay attention. There's a technique that that police use, which is uh, they will listen to your story when they get on the scene. They'll say, oh, what happened? And, of course, you'll go through the events. Well, this happened and that happened. Then he said, and then this happened and those. Okay, well, then he'll say, tell it to me backwards. Because if you just told the truth, if those are the events that actually occurred, you can do it. You can tell it backwards. Oh, those people came in back here, and then I said this, and then that happened. And, and if you can tell the same story backwards, the cops will usually believe, well, that, that has to be the valid story. But if you're lying, your wicked heart can't stay hidden forever. And eventually your lies are going to catch up with you. Your wickedness is going to come out. When people catch you in the lie, they don't want to be around you anymore. Because they find out that I thought you were a good guy. I thought I could trust you. I thought, but now it's been revealed. And the wickedness of your heart has come out. And you were just concealing your violence. Get the idea? So the contrast is the mouth Of the righteous is like a fountain of life, and the mouth of the wicked is lying, concealing its violence, concealing the heart of the person. Verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. I think that goes two ways. We'll start with the second half of the phrase. Love covers all transgressions. Somebody look up 1 Peter 4, 8 for a second. And somebody else look up 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. Uh, Tom, if you would, do the 1 Peter one. And Micah, if you would, look up the 1 Corinthians 13 passage. 1 Peter 4, 8. And I'll thank you to pay attention from now on.
1: Well, I was going for a second.
0: Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Because we're going to see that same idea carried into the New Testament, that love covers all transgressions. Here's what that basically means. I'm guessing, Sandy, never mind. I'm going to talk to your wife. I'm guessing that your children, just because I think she's probably more compassionate, your children (laughs) have probably at some point done something that you disagreed with, right? Yeah. Did you ever forgive them? Why? Because you love them. And that love for them covers those transgressions. Even though they may have had to pay a price for the transgressions, ultimately they're forgiven. Sometimes you kind of size it up and say, okay, is this really worth having a big to-do about? Or is this something that I can just let go? Because I love them. Well, that's the idea here. Hatred between people. Hatred between humans causes all kinds of strife. It can't help but do that. It causes differences. It causes dissension. It causes blame. It causes finger pointing and arguing with each other. That's what comes from disliking one another. And that's why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament in Christianity on loving each other because there's not supposed to be strife within the body. There's supposed to be camaraderie and forgiveness within the body so there's supposed to be love by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love one for the other and that kind of love is going to cover the transgressions and so if you love each other and somebody that you love within the body offends you you can forgive that offense you can get past that rather than using that as an opportunity to stir up strife and cause problems remember what we read last week or perhaps the week before that there's six things that the lord hates and the seventh is an abomination and that seventh one do you remember what it was causing dissension stirring up strife among brethren and so hatred causes that kind of strife and dissension and god hates that so what's the solution for that Loving one another. Because if you love each other, that covers all kinds of transgressions. You're more willing to forgive each other if you love each other. You've got First Peter 4, eight. This is love covering a multitude of sins, I do believe. It's what you just said. Okay.
1: <laughs> Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Mm.
0: Same idea as here. Love covers all transgressions. Love covers a multitude of sins. Whether Old Testament or New Testament, we're still talking about the value of loving one another and how that covers the differences, the arguments, the dissension that would be between us otherwise. I also think you can kind of read it backwards and say, if you're stirring up strife, that's not a demonstration of love. You're instructed to love, not just to love one another, but even to love your enemies. And if you're stirring up strife, according to Solomon, that's just hatred. And I do know people who stir up strife in the church and claim to be loving, but that action belies the claim. All right, if you would, Micah, 1 Corinthians 13, read verse 4 to verse 7, and stand up and read.
1: Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a long suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things.
0: And that can kind of be summarized in love covers all kinds of transgressions. And notice that it didn't keep track Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't say, you hurt me, I'm going to get you someday. Mm. you got to sleep eventually, and then (laughs) then I'm going to get you. (laughs) That's an agape love, isn't it? That is agape love, yeah. It's sacrificial love. And I have defined that kind of love many times as doing what is best for the one who's being loved. Even if the one being loved doesn't appreciate it doesn't thank you for it, doesn't take note of it, because that's the kind of love that God loved us with. Even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Even when we were enemies of God, he loved us and demonstrated that love to us. So we're then called to be that kind of loving, which is forgiving, sacrificial. And if you got to take the hit occasionally, take the hit. What I mean by that is, If you're offended by something, take the offense for the good of the unity of the body. Verse 13, we may not make it through this chapter tonight. Verse 13, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. That's very much like what he's already told us. The wise of heart will receive commands or that the words of the righteous bring life the same idea on the lips or in other words the speech of the discerning if you listen to those people who have the ability to discern good from evil who have the wisdom to be able to determine what's right what's wrong if you listen to them then wisdom can be found from them but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding that's a little bit cryptic what it basically means is Beating with a rod was the way that you would punish criminals, one of the many ways that criminals were punished back in ancient Israel. And so he, as king, could say that if you don't have understanding, you're not going to listen to those who are discerning, you're not going to take good advice when it's given to you, and ultimately you're going to become a problem in society, and you're going to end up having to be punished as a criminal, So the ultimate end of not paying attention is that you're going to be beaten with a rod, which was just a punishment for criminal activity. In other words, if you don't pay attention to wise people, if you won't learn, if you're just a babbling fool, you're going to end up in the dregs of society. Make sense?
1: Yes, sir.
0: Yes. Wise men store up knowledge. Wise men. Collect knowledge. Wise men can't wait to find out what proper living looks like. What proper discernment is. Wise men want to know primarily the word of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wise people are always searching out the way to a better, more righteous, more upright life. But with the mouth of the foolish Ruin is at hand. Notice how often he keeps going back to the mouth. Keeps going back to babbling fools. He keeps going back to the inability of unwise people to listen, to pay attention. But boy, they sure talk. They can't wait to tell you what they think. And what they're going to say is ruinous. The mouth of the foolish brings about ruination. With the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Verse 15, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. I mentioned this maybe a half hour ago, that what Solomon is getting at is that when you have the opportunity to work, you should work, you should take advantage of it, but then you should also lay something in store so that you can build up for yourself what you need during the time of, winter, during the time when work is not available to you. So not only should you take advantage of the times when you can make gain, but then you should hold on to it so that you have it when you need it. And then that becomes what he's saying is like a fortress around you. You're less likely to be hurt if you have something laid aside in store. But if you don't have anything laid aside in store, You don't have a protection around you, so the ruin of the poor is their poverty. Now, that Hebrew word for poor right there means more than just economically poor, but it means the people who haven't listened to the advice that led to someone being a rich man. There's the proper advice, the righteous advice, that leads to proper wealth, which becomes a fortress... And the people who don't pay attention to that become what he's describing as the poor. And that's to their ruination. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. And their poverty came about because they weren't diligent when they had the opportunity to work. Like I said, again, I wish Solomon would just stay on topic all the way through here. But as you take the different couplets and put them together, You get that sense of the importance of working when you can, laying something aside, using that as a protection against future ruin. And if you're not wise enough to do all of that, you're going to become poor, and your ruination is that very poverty. So part of wisdom is being diligent. Verse 16. The wages, or the payment to the righteous is life the income of the wicked is punishment a moment ago I said to you that the rod on the back was a punishment this is the same idea again that the income the ultimate end the payment to the wicked is ultimately going to be punishment in the society in which Solomon was king wise people, diligent people were going to Follow the basic rules of society and the rules of God and follow the law. And they were going to walk through their life in integrity. And they were going to have to fear and they were going to be fine. The king didn't have to worry about them. He He didn't have to create laws and punishments in order to keep those people walking uprightly. But among the wicked, among the unlearned, among the people who rebelled against the things of God... The king, by necessity, had to have a series of punishments, whether that was prison, whether that was a rod, whatever kind of punishment that was, because his job as king was to rule within the law of God. He had to continue to advance God's own theocratic rules, and that's part of what it was to be the king in Israel, and so it was necessary to have punishments in place. And so Solomon is saying, if you don't pay attention to righteousness, the ultimate payment that's going to come to you is punishment. The ultimate end of not walking uprightly is punishment. And he is on the path of life who can pay attention to instruction. He that heeds instruction is on that path to life. But he who forsakes reproof goes astray so one more time the contrast is between forsaking reproof and heeding instruction solomon says that if you pay attention when someone who knows more than you who's upright who's righteous when he instructs you pay attention to it but if you forsake it when he tries to reprove you when he corrects you well then all you're going to do is go astray from the proper path from the proper way And ultimately, that's going to lead to punishment. So, all right, we started on time with the promise that we would end on time. And so we will stop right there at verse 18, where he's going to again visit the same idea that he who conceals hatred has lying lips. And he who spreads slander is a fool. We'll pick up right there next week. Are you seeing the wisdom of what Solomon is saying so far? Yes, Yes. sir. I, again, after these many years, and it had been a number of years since I had really looked at the Proverbs closely again, and I've really enjoyed doing it again. I have found an instruction that is as relevant today as it ever was in Solomon's day. I think the basic instruction of work when you have the opportunity, lay things aside, be ready for the the day of calamity, be prepared. It'll act like a fortress for you. That's just really good financial advice. That's something that you would want to teach your child. Just do the right stuff. Pay attention when you have an opportunity to work. Just put some money aside. But then at the same time, the instruction about how important it is to walk uprightly and how you can walk in that sort of integrity and people will respect you and you have nothing to fear But that if you walk in wickedness and lying with an evil heart, no matter how well you try to cover it up with your flattering words and nice speech, eventually it's going to come out. Everybody's going to figure that out. That's as true today as it's ever been. Because human nature is human nature and people have not changed through all these years. And so that advice of what it is to be upright and righteous is completely valid today. Make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay, questions about that? No, all right then, say goodbye to the, oh, by the way, I got an email the other day because I can't get away with anything. I got an email the other day from someone who said, why have you taken to calling us the internet congregation? You used to say, say goodbye to the internet people. And then you decided we were the internet congregation. Why did you make that change? So say goodbye to the people of the Internet congregation.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.